Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48 will be in this chapter as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled, A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. What I want us to do today is to read a little bit of scripture and then work to hear what God has to say to us in that section and then we'll read a little more and listen a little more as we work through the entirety of Isaiah chapter 48. In a moment I'll begin by reading verses 1 and 2 and pray for us and then we will dig in and walk through this chapter together. Isaiah chapter 48 beginning in verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, We remind you in our own hearts of your ancient promise now that when you send forth your word, it does not return to you void, but it accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. Father, we ask that you would be willing to accomplish your purposes in your people at this time. And I ask that you would be willing to do so even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to Isaiah 48, the first word here in the translation I read is hear this. If you have a different translation such as the NIV, it begins with listen to this. This this verb here, hear or listen, is a very important one for understanding this chapter because God, through Isaiah, uses this verb for to listen or to hear at least ten times in Isaiah chapter 48. Just a few times as a preview. You can see it uh, here at the very beginning. You see it down in verse 7. Before today, you have never heard of them. Verse 8, you have never heard, you have never known, from old your ear has not been opened. Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Verse 16, draw near to me and hear this. This idea of listening to God or hearing God is very important to God. Why would that be? Well, It's because faith in God begins with hearing God. Faith in God begins with hearing God. Remember Romans 10 and verse 17 where we read, Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so God begins and throughout this chapter keeps coming back to this idea of hearing him or listening to him. And so we see listening to God is important to God because faith in God begins with hearing God. Without a word from God, we are stuck in our own thinking, limited by our own experience, or the limited experience and thinking of whomever it is that we consult as a counselor or reference. Contrast that 
with the word of the unlimited God who knows all things and is not bound by time or culture or limited knowledge. We live in a culture, we live in a world today that likes to say whatever I have experienced must be true. And we want to universalize that for all times and all places and all cultures. Conversely, in the world we live in today, we tend to say, if I have not experienced it, it must not be true. And then universalize that for all times and places and cultures. But I wonder, can we really universalize our lived experience? Is that really a good guide for all people in all times and all places and all cultures? You see, each individual, each one of us individually has an insufficient guide to what is true in the universe. Our experience is, is too limited. We haven't been in all places and all times and in all cultures. We have insufficient knowledge. We don't know all things. So our experience is too limited to apply universally. And what we do think we know is bound by our own viewpoint. So it has no way to be corrected. And so we're all bound by our lived experience. Unless we hear from God. Unless we're listening to Him. Because God from outside of our world, from outside of our existence, from outside of time, from outside of culture has spoken into our world. And his word is trustworthy and superior to our lived experience because it's not bound by any of the things that bind us. So if God has spoken and his word is superior, then the question for us is, are we listening to him? Are we hearing what God has to say? I talked about how our culture tends to view everything through our lived experience. But you need to understand that when God is saying these things, he's not talking to people out there. He's talking to people who profess faith in him. You see that in verse 1, right? He says, hear this, O house of Jacob, those who are descended from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? The people of God who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. These are people who profess faith in God. But look at that last line. They confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. You see, their confession is empty. They weren't really listening to God. They're not seeing the implications of God's word for all of life. They were not open to the surprising ways that God often works. They limited God because they didn't really know the God who is limitless. You see, people who know the real limitless God say things like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 11 and verse 33. When Paul said, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, who can trace out his paths? Who can know what he's up to? By paraphrase, he says, you know, who has been God's counselor and told him anything he didn't know? Who has given to God that God should repay him? You see, for those who 
really know the real God who is limitless. It leads to a humility in a way that we hold our lives loosely. Yes, we have our lived experience. There are certain things that we want, desires that we have, but we hold those things loosely before God and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done in my life, in your way, at your time, by your grace, for your glory. We don't tend to live that way because we do not listen, and therefore we don't know the real God. But I want you to know this morning, God is not surprised or defeated when his people fail to listen and therefore fail to know the real God. God discusses that. Look with me in verses 3 through 5. He talks about how he's worked with his people in the past. Listen to what he says in verse beginning of verse 3. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know, says God, that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. Let's stop right there. What's God saying? He's saying in the past that God has been faithful to his promises, not because we've been so faithful to him, not because we have listened to him and walked in his ways, so he hasn't been faithful to his promises because of us. God's saying he's been faithful to his promises in the past in spite of us because we're obstinate. That means we're stubborn, we are stiff-necked, we are hard-headed, God says here. It's interesting, when good things happen, we tend to think that we have figured things out and made them happen by our smarts, by our relational skills, by our networks and connections, by our own resources, So when God said in the past he predicted what would happen, he did so so that we would not take credit or give credit to one of our idols or anything besides God. You know, it's interesting to me, I often meet with people, and they don't say it this way, but if you listen long enough and you ask enough questions, basically people come to me and they, they, they're confused, they don't have peace, they don't understand why, and as I talk to them, basically this is the position they've taken. All the good things that have happened in life are because I have sort of done the right things, I've made the right decisions, I've figured things out, you know, I've followed all the rules, I've done what you're supposed to do. But these bad things have happened in my life, and I'm sort of mad at God about these bad things because he did not intervene to stop them. We don't say it that way, but that's the way that we think and function a lot of times, isn't it? And it's interesting to me, I don't really think it works that way. I think God needs a little bit more credit for the good things that he does that we tend to take credit for. I think we need a little more of the blame for the bad things that happen because of our poor choices when we tend to blame shift toward God. Even as the people of God, we have trouble saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow 
because we want to believe that we did some things to make the good things happen. And for those of us who are angry at God because of the bad things and want to blame him for them, just, just think about this with me. If God is big enough for you to be mad at him for not stopping these bad things that happen, which is what you believe, right? If your God is that big, then God is big enough to have good reasons to allow those bad things to continue. He has reasons for not intervening to stop them, reasons that we cannot see right now or even understand. So as we approach God, let's have some humility as we come before him. As James prayed this morning, referred to Isaiah 55, where God says, Look, my thoughts are, are way above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. In fact, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. So we need to have a little humility as we come before a limitless God. But God keeps on talking here. In verses 6 through 8, he says he will do some new things. But he's going to do them in some surprising ways. Look at verses 6 through 8. Hear what God says. God says, You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. What's God saying in these verses? God's saying that he's going to do some new things. You see that there in verse 6. He goes on to talk about how he's going to do them in some surprising ways that we would never guess or foresee. And God says he will keep surprising us with his plans, that we won't see things coming. Now, why would God work in that way? Well, he says here why. He says it's because if He, because we can't really be trusted to know his plans. You see that in verse 8, right, where he says we would deal treacherously with them. Well, why would God say that about us? Because he knows our hearts. And God says, if I told you ahead of time what was going to happen, that we would say, well, yeah, I knew that was coming. I, I saw that coming a mile away. I knew that was going to happen. I predicted that. I told that, right? Kind of like we do maybe you, when you're watching a movie or you're reading a book or you're watching a television show, and we like to figure out what's going to happen. And there's a certain smugness that comes with that, that we think we're pretty smart, that we figured out what was going on. So God says, I withhold some of my plans. I do things in some surprising ways, because if I didn't, you would take some kind of credit. You would take some kind of pride in knowing what was going to happen. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't like the unknown. We feel helpless not knowing. But God says here, if he told us in advance what was going to happen, then we would not depend on him. We would not walk with him. We would not lean on him moment by moment because we would think that we were capable in ourselves. Maybe you see a little bit of tension here between those verses 3 through 5 and 6 through 8. 
I, I wrestled with that this week. God was saying, in the past, I told you what was going to happen so that you wouldn't take credit for them or give credit to your idols. And then he says in verses 6 through 8, but I'm going to do some new things, and I'm not going to tell you what they are so that you won't take credit for them and you won't, uh, you won't know what's going to happen. Maybe you feel some tension there. I felt that tension. And as I thought about it, as I've read God's word, and as I've walked with people through life, I think what God is saying here, and what I've experienced is this. Didn't you just tell us to be careful of lived experience? Yes, that was point number one. So you should take what I say with a grain of salt, weigh it against the scripture. But I think this is what God is saying here. What I see in the scripture, what I hear him saying, and what I've experienced as I've walked with him and with other people through difficult things is this. God tends to be very clear and give answers to the big, universal, foundational things of life. He's very clear. And then there are other things that we really want to know the answer that are more individual, that are not as big and universal, that God doesn't tell us the answer to. Some examples. Some things, God, that are more personal that he doesn't give us the answer to. Sometimes we ask the question, I heard it in the prayer this morning, right? Why do I have cancer? Why does my friend have cancer? God doesn't give exact, clear answers to that. As we prayed this morning in the prayers, as I was just listening, you know, will my loved one who is overseas come back home safely? We don't have a clear answer to that in the Scripture. Will I have enough money to make it to the end of the month? Will I have enough money for retirement to retire the way that I want to? We don't have clear answers to those sort of individual questions that we often pose to God. Because he wants us to rely on him in those things and walk with him moment by moment, day by day. But the big universal questions, God is very clear. And I don't mean those other questions are not important. I'm saying they're different than these bigger foundational questions like, does life have any purpose or meaning? Does my life mean anything? What purpose do we have as humans? God is very clear in giving an answer to that question. Why are things so broken and messed up? Why are things so wrong? God gives a very clear answer. What is it that God would have me do in the world? Is there any hope for how things are broken and messed up? Is there any hope for things being made right? God gives a very clear answer. In all these things, am I alone? Am I left to my own resources? God gives a very clear answer to that. So what I see here and what I've experienced as I walk with people is God gives us answers to those big foundational questions that are very clear. But to those smaller individual questions, weighty as they are, he tends to not be so clear so that we would depend on him. You see, God tells us just enough in the Bible so that we have something to trust him for, but he doesn't tell us so much that we can ignore him along the way, which is our tendency, right? Let's just be honest. I mean, some of us ignore him now with the amount of information that we have now. Some of us ignore God as if we don't need him. And it tends to be when we're living very comfortable lives that we think we can manage until something comes along that is too big for us to handle, then we get mad at God and blame him that he didn't intervene to stop that thing, right? It's kind of how we work. That's kind of how we live. So if God tells us, we get prideful and arrogant. If God doesn't tell us, we get mad and bitter. God can't win. Why does he even put up with us? Why does he continue to hang with us? Why does he love us? 
God answers that question here in verses 9 through 11. If I've lost you, come back to me. This is an important concept. Why does God stick with people who are stubborn, obstinate, rebellious, hard-headed, stiff-necked? Why does God stick with rebels like us? He tells us here in verses 9 through 11. Look at the text. God speaking. God says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, what's God saying here? Do you hear what he's saying? God's saying that he defers or delays his wrath. That he restrains and holds back his anger so that we're not cut off and lost. God is saying here that even though he sends the refining fire of exile for these folks that he's talking to directly, and the unexpected things of life that he allows to happen to us, that God sends but holds back that refining fire, that he limits our affliction but refines us through that affliction. Always moving us to a better place. Always giving us better than we deserve. That's what God's saying that he does. But the question we asked was, why? Why does he do that for people who don't, that don't listen? Why does he do that for stubborn people? Why does he do that for hard-headed people? And he tells us here, why does he do that? God says, for the sake of his name. For the sake of his praise. For the sake of his glory that he will not give to another. What's this concept? What's God saying for his name, for his praise, for his glory? What's he saying? Well, think about it with me. If you have that view of the world that God saves or that God helps or that God intervenes for people who do more good than bad, right? Sort of a cosmic karma. If you do good things, good things will come around. If you do bad things, bad things will come. If that's kind of the way you see the world, that that's how God works, that for those who do more good than bad, then God does good for them, and for those who do more bad, God does bad for them. If that's your view of the world, let me just ask you, where's the glory of God in that? He's just giving people what they deserve. He's just giving people what they have earned. There's no glory for God in that. That just makes him just, right? That just makes him fair, but let me tell you about this God of the Bible, because what I just described is not the God of the Bible. That is not, there is no glory for him in that. Let me tell you about the glory of this God. The glory of this God is that for the praise of his name, that for people who don't listen, who don't pay attention, who don't obey his commands, who are stubborn and obstinate, who are stiff-necked and hard-headed, who try to rob God of his glory. For bl They blame him for everything bad that happens. They take credit for all the good. For those kinds of people, God redeems them. He saves them. He loves them. Verse 17 says, He teaches them the way that they should go and leads them in the right direction. Verse 20 is where it says that he redeems them. Verse 21 says that he provides for those people the things that they need. That's the glory of this God. It is the redemption of those who don't deserve it. That's what his glory is. God's glory involves, it's more than, but it's at least that God saves people who don't deserve it. 
The praise of this God's name comes from people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this kind of glory and love that God has should astound us. That God loves people who don't deserve it. And God must love this kind of love. Because God calls that kind of love his glory. He calls this kind of love his glory. And he does all of these things, yes, for his glory, but also for our good. Uh, before the service, we were talking about that. And we were saying those two things go together. Don't ever pit God's glory and our good against each other. Because they go hand in hand. I suppose it's John Piper who has said it best when he said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That when we gain the satisfaction of our hearts in God alone, then he is glorified. And we are satisfied in a way that nothing else can satisfy us. Well, how should we respond to all this? Let's keep going in the text. How do we respond? Look at verses 12 through 16. God is still speaking here, and God says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. What's God saying here? God's saying, look, because of your disobedience, remember the history and the context of the book? His people are going to be conquered by the Babylonians, taken off into exile for six or seven decades. But then God's going to raise up Cyrus. That's who he's talking about here. He's going to raise up Cyrus the Persian to conquer the Babylonians so that his people can go back home to Judah. And God says he loves Cyrus, that he calls Cyrus, that he's going to give Cyrus victories, that he's going to prosper his way which is crazy talk to the people of God. This is one of those surprising things that they can't understand. Remember, the people of God call on his name, worship in his temple, and he's allowing them to be carried off into exile. But this godless, pagan, Persian plunderer is the one on whom God's favor rests who he's using to save his people. It's an embarrassing plan for the people of God. They have to be defeated, go into exile. They're saved by this pagan. They go home with his permission. They rebuild their temple with his money. It's humiliating for them. It's hard to accept what God is doing. And so we see here, God is showing us that he works in some surprising ways. Now think about that for us, okay? Think about that for the people of God in this day at this time. What that means is that God works in surprising ways in your life as well. Ways that don't make sense to you. Ways that you never would have imagined. If God can use a Persian pagan plunderer to accomplish his purposes in his people in the day of Isaiah, 
then what are some crazy things God could use in your life to accomplish his purposes in you now? I don't know, a global pandemic comes to mind. How is God using that in our hearts, in our culture, in our lives to accomplish his purposes? How has God used quarantine? How does God use political instability in our world to accomplish his purposes in us? Are we even asking those questions? Are you seeking the Lord and asking, Lord, what are you doing in the world and what are you wanting to do in me? You see, God here calls us to look below the surface of the events that are going on around us to see God's presence with us in the midst of these crazy times. Isn't that exactly what he says in verse 16? Look what he says. He says, draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. This is one of those things he's revealed. It's one of the big fundamental things that you need to face those things that he hasn't told you about. What is it? He says, from the time it came near to be, I have been there. God is saying in all the crazy things in your life, he has been there. In the midst of the stuff we cannot understand, God has been there. In your story, in your struggles, God has been there with you, using it for your good. And that's how we have a certain hope in uncertain times, because we have the assurance that even in the midst of the uncertain times, God has been there, and he is with us. And in all things, God is teaching us and leading us where he wants us to go. He says that explicitly in verse 17. Look at it. He says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Now when he says he teaches you to profit, don't think of capitalism. He's teaching you how to make money. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying when he teaches you to profit, he's teaching you for your good. He's teaching you what is going to make you better. He's teaching us what is best for us. He's teaching us what really matters. He's teaching us what the real treasure is so that we learn to sacrifice other things and even to suffer the loss of all things that we may gain a relationship with God and walk with him and be satisfied in him alone. Are you willing to do that? Have you made that commitment to walk with him and be satisfied by him alone? Are you carrying out that commitment in your life, walking with him, listening to his word, hearing him? I want to warn you. If you hear God calling you and working in your heart, do not refuse him today. Don't make excuses. Don't hold him at arm's length. Don't talk yourself out of responding because God gives a warning here. Look at verses 18 and 19. God says to his people, remember, he says, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the ways of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. You hear what God is saying? God is saying, I love you. I'm going to keep you. But I'm not going to let you do whatever you want to do. I'm going to do what it takes to teach you to walk in my ways. You see, God's love for us does not shield us from dodging him or wandering from him. God wants our peace and our righteousness to flow in abundance. But if we do not walk with him, 
then we will not experience the fullness of his covenant blessings, which is what this language is referring to here. Yes, he's our people. Now, now if you're not part of the people of God and you wander away, you'll be destroyed. This is for God's people. If you don't walk with him, if you're not walking, you don't listen to his commands, he's going to do what it takes to bring you back. But you're going to lose out and experience the sweetness of walking with him. There are consequences for the people of God not walking with God. But what if we do walk with him? What if we listen to him and walk with him? Look at verses 20 and 21. He, he talks about it. God says, go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He spilt the rock and the water gushed out. Hear what God's saying there? He's saying we all have to decide. <laughs> Are we going to settle down in the Babylon of this world and, and find our comfort here and seek peace here in the Babylon of this world? Or are we going to decide that this world is not our home and we are going to walk with God on this journey that is a relationship with God? That's what he's saying. And then he makes this reference in verse 21 to the Exodus, right? He says it's just like the Exodus from Egypt. God is calling us to an incredible adventure of following him. And although the way is rocky, it looks barren and empty, he assures us that he can provide for us when it looks like nothing is there. That our God gets water out of a rock. That he works in some surprising ways. So will you settle into this world and get comfortable in this place or will you venture out and walk with God? The last verse says, verse 22, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There's no peace in settling in this world. There's no peace in walking away and not walking with God. Will you walk with him? Whenever I hear a sermon like this, maybe it's because of my background and experience in church, I always feel like we should have an invitation. We should let people come down and make a decision. And listen, I don't knock churches that do that. I think there's a lot of good in that. If it helps you to walk with them every day, to walk down the aisle one time and to have that and to have people hold you accountable, I'm all for that. But let me tell you why we don't do that here. It's because primarily God does not want you to walk down the aisle today. Primarily God wants you to walk with him every day. And in the culture in which we live, there are people who walk down an aisle one day, and because of that, they have a false confidence and a false assurance when they don't walk with him every day. And so what God wants, what you can do, even if you're listening online at home, you don't have to walk down an aisle, but I do call you to walk with him every day to not be satisfied. The text says you'll never find peace in this world. So will you let God be God? Will you let him come to you with his gushing grace in Christ Jesus, who was that rock that living waters flow out of? Will you listen to God and walk with him? Or are you just going to hear another sermon and then walk your own way?
I call you to walk with him today and every day. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I commit this word to you and pray that you would use it in the hearts of your people that the evil one would not be able to pluck this truth from their mind. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you, would, that you would drive it deeply into our hearts so that we would long to walk with you every day. So that when hard things, when bad things happen, we would see it as an opportunity to run back to you, to lean on you, to walk with you moment by moment. So that when good things happen, we are able to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because I know I deserve nothing, but in you we receive everything. Please come and do this in us and through us, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.